Our Old Testament reading this week comes from Deuteronomy. It's the 26th chapter, the opening 12 verses. And in these verses, we hear a a portion of the covenant reiterated for us. It's a reminder for God's people of who they are and whose they are, how they should be acting in that identity as the chosen people of God. I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is written. Then it shall be when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance and you possess it and live in it, that you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground which you bring in from the land that the Lord your God gives you, and you shall put it in a basket and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish his name. You shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare this day to the Lord my God that I have entered the land which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. You shall answer and say before the Lord your God, My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down to Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. But there he became a great, mighty, and populous nation, and the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us and imposed hard labor on us. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction and our toil and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror and with signs and wonders. And he has brought us to this place and he has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now behold, I have brought the first of the produce of the ground which you, the Lord, has given me, and you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God And you and the Levite and the alien who is among you shall rejoice in all the good which the Lord your God has given you and your household. When you have finished paying all the tithe of your increase in the third year, the year of tithing, then you shall give it to the Levite, to the stranger, to the orphan, and to the widow, that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. And our New Testament reading this morning comes to us from the book of Acts in the second chapter, beginning at the 42nd verse and continuing through the 47th. Again, I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as we hear the account written by Luke of how the first, the earliest Christians were living after the resurrection and in light of the knowledge of the resurrection of Jesus. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. 
They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number and those who were being saved. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. These verses from the second chapter of the book of Acts, they give us a glimpse into the ordering of the life of faith within the very early church. When these conditions were recorded, there were no dedicated church buildings like these, the ones that we have today, the ones that we have so recently, until now, taken for granted. So, as I mentioned in last week's sermon, during our own present time of exile, while we are no longer regularly worshiping in dedicated church buildings either, it is even more fascinating and perhaps enlightening to read how things were ordered in an era in which this was also the case. Biblical scholars sometimes refer to the 42nd verse in the second chapter of Acts as a handbook of sorts for how to be church. It encompasses the four great hallmarks of a corporate faith. They include repeating and imitating the works of those who had accompanied Jesus during the time of his earthly ministry, continuing to maintain fellowship, breaking bread together after the manner which Jesus had done with his disciples at the Last Supper, and committing themselves to the practice of prayer. And once again, just by way of a gentle reminder, they did all these things without the benefit of a dedicated church building. In fact, the text goes on to tell us they spent a good deal of time in the great temple of the Jewish faith, though they now saw their covenant relationship with God differently than did the other worshipers who were in attendance there. This is a helpful and appreciated reminder to us that while having a building in which to host religious services is a blessing, it is not a prerequisite for practicing our faith. That is also a bit of the message that I was in, hoping to impart earlier this past week when I sent out an email focusing on the work of the Christian. All that the first Christians did, and now that we as Christians in this time and place are doing as an expression of that faith which we share, it's taking place outside this building called church. Yet the work itself is no less sacred than anything that goes on inside our wonderful and historic sanctuaries. This romantic ideal of how the early Christians went about being faithful 
hasn't been lost on the emerging church movement of the recent past in which worshiping communities were being formed around venues that were deemed to be more palatable to the unchurched than the traditional church might be. And that's why we've seen examples in the not-too-distant past of Christian communities being formed around a, a coffee house or around a restaurant or even around a bar. We've been trying to meet people where they are instead of convincing them that they have to come to our house, no matter how nice we happen to think our house is. But here in 2020, in the midst of this latest disruption to all of society, we've seen the closure of both sacred and secular public venues, therefore, effectively, putting both the emergent fellowship and the well-established church locales on the sidelines. And so, we find ourselves today looking to the Wayback Machine and asking Sherman if he would be willing to go back to take a look at the life of Christian communities that existed before anyone ever thought of building something that would rival or even exceed the, the grandeur of Herod's temple, or even that of a humble country sanctuary, for a fresh word about ways to live out of faith without walls. As we do so this morning, we see a people who were united by a faith, and not simply by a building. But we also read about the importance to them of a fellowship in that community. When we hear that word, the word fellowship, uh, the first thing that might often come to mind is something like that that we here have become rather accustomed to on Sunday mornings at Rehoboth. Familiar faces, friends in the pews around us, favorite hymns, prayers, an offering, sometimes a halfway decent sermon, and occasionally a new presence in the form of a visitor. But as Luke, the author of Acts, is writing about the fellowship in that time, he is obviously referring to something that looks a bit different than all of this, for he and probably many other early Christian converts, the word that is translated here as fellowship meant a, a sort of common life. And yes, it is possible to create Christian community in close proximity to others, but you can also participate in the fellowship of all believers when you are not in the presence of all believers. Just because you're not in proximity to one doesn't prevent you from sharing with the other in a common life. A communal life might be ruled out, but not a common life. You can see those two words, common and communal, are related to one another, but they aren't synonymous, nor are they mutually exclusive. You can have community then without regard for distance 
or time, for that matter, for just as the apostles and the martyrs, the, the founding fathers of the faith, as it were, and those of our Christian ancestors who now rest from their labors, they're all members of the community of faith, even though we've never had the opportunity to participate alongside with all of them in a worship service or even a potluck supper or a crab feast. But they are no less members of the community of faith in the wider sense, just as the Reverend Francis McKemmy, the founder of this congregation, is no less a member of this community of faith, though he has not shepherded this congregation for 312 years. On the windows here in this sanctuary and on the ends of the pews here at Rehoboth as well, there are inscribed the names of folks with powerful ties to this church in the centuries gone by. And if you step over across the parking lot to the Fellowship Hall there, you can read the names on the handsome brass plates affixed to the wooden tablets, the names of many of the saints that perhaps you once knew as a, a faithful member of this congregation. All of them are part of this community of faith. All this is so because they have something in common with us and not just as in so many cases the last name, no, what we share that binds us together as a household of faith in this particular community is, in general, a common Savior and a common set of beliefs about this Jesus, and in particular, a common context for learning and sharing and living out the good news that we have come to appreciate as a result of what we generally have in common. Perhaps... One of the best illustrations of or metaphors for the sort of fellowship that's being described here in Acts and lifted up for us by Luke is that of family. When we hear that word, I, th I think first of my own household and those in it at the present time. My wife, our daughters, very true, that is Family, But I also realize that that is not the extent of my family, just as those who are currently in residence in your households are not the extent of your families either. You share things in common with others. Perhaps if you're close, you share some common experiences and memories with these people. And if you're not that close, you still share things that make you family. I have first cousins that I have never met. But we share some of the same DNA. We're still family. And with the coming of Jesus... As the authors of all the New Testament texts are aware, we are now all a part of another, and dare I say, even more important family than that, on account of the common blood that we share, 
that was shed for us by our Savior. Acknowledging this new reality, we are encouraged then to reorder both our thinking and our living, to make necessary and required adjustments to our lives as new creations and as new relations in the household of God. Over the past couple of months, we've been living into what it means to be a community without the customary rituals. And along the way, my prayer is that we have had and that we will continue to have revealed to us ways to be strengthened ourselves and to strengthen one another in our lives as a part of a community of faith. The description that's given us here in Acts, the life of the freshly created faith community, is that it looked out for one another. Kind of like, well, kind of like family is called too. If there was a brother or a sister in need, the siblings would do what they needed to do in order to address that need. If one lacked something, there were resources from within the community that could be shared. And by not always looking out for number one, by taking care of those who are now related in Christ alone, the life of this fellowship community began to be noticed by others who were unaccustomed to seeing such acts of care and compassion for those who didn't dwell beneath the same roof. It was apparently refreshing to many of that day to see acts of goodwill and charity being done for others. And I have to say that I think even now it continues to be refreshing to see people who are not always looking out for number one. On account in part of this lifestyle which they had obediently chosen to live in imitation of their Messiah, we are told that the community grew in number. We're told that their number was added to. Now when preachers sometimes preach on this text, more than a few end with an exhortation that goes something like this. Now if, brothers and sisters, we just follow this simple four-step formula given to us by our ancestors in the faith, then we too, we too will see the same things happen right here in our own communities of faith. And before you know it, uh, the, the church will be overflowing with people. But as I am not involved in an emerging urban fellowship community in the Middle East, in the first century, but rather a part of a well-established rural fellowship community halfway around the world 2,000 years on, I am not about to guarantee to you that this is necessarily still a roadmap for numerical growth. We depend upon the Lord to add to our number, and we always shall but I think we have been given a pretty good guide 
to keep us busy with our own spiritual and community growth. By that, I mean a strengthening of the ties that bind us to Christ and to one another, brothers and sisters in this faith which he has gifted to us. And for that, we may truly say, thanks be to God and amen.